And um, i got to tell you, I was sharing this with somebody uh, yesterday and then with my wife tonight over dinner before uh, coming in. Uh, I just cannot get over how symmetrical the Bible is. Um, There's a lot of this I haven't really shared in the message, but in every book of the Bible, you can see that there is great order and great structure uh, in each and every book. And you would be uh, hard-pressed to ever convince me that uh, this book is just a book of fairy tales and make-believe. It, it is too well put together over too many millennia uh, with too many different authors uh, for that to be the case. If you believed that one person sat down and wrote this and had a super high IQ, I could see where you're coming from. I wouldn't agree with you. I could see where you're coming from. But this book, the way it's structured and put together is just phenomenal. And uh, the book of John, uh, it definitely holds serve with that. And we're going to see that over the next three Wednesday nights. Uh, we're going to be looking at the book of John. If you've got your uh, prayer bulletin there on the back, you see one-third of the outline. Just one-third of the outline. And we've got uh, a whole lot more to come. So we're going to have to rush to get through this. So let's get into it tonight. John chapter 1. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And we'll begin in verse 1 and read down through verse number 5 here. Thankful to those of you that come straight from work or rushed around at home to get here from work. And I hope that um, uh, you get something from God's Word tonight. It makes it worth your while. And I just have to say that uh, God bless you for being here tonight. John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same as in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. All the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight. We'll look at this topic, Jesus, the Son of God. Lord, I pray tonight that you'd help us as we begin our journey in the book of John, that you'd make it clear to us. I pray that we would not only learn things that maybe we didn't know before, but God, we would leave here applying things to our lives and make us uh, make our Christian life more enhanced. God, no doubt somebody came in tonight discouraged by life. Uh, they've had a rough week today. Uh, to date, and uh, Lord, they need a spiritual pick-me-up. I pray that this would be the spiritual gas in their tank, and Lord, that it would uh, encourage them and help them to um, fight the battles of life, and uh, uh, Lord, to get through, uh, Lord, another week of, of, of hardships. Lord, we know that we have hardships in life, but God, we know that we have a good shepherd that watches over us and helps us through those. So I pray tonight there would be some of that that goes on in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So we looked at the book of Matthew. We saw that Jesus is our king. And Jesus is the lawgiver as the king. He also is the enforcer of the law. And we said that Matthew has five sections to it, just like Moses that wrote five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, whereas Moses was the giver of the law. Uh, Moses went up on the mountain, got the law. Jesus went up on the mountain and gave the law. So we talked about how Jesus was uh, uh, the king in uh, the book of Matthew. We looked at the book of Mark and we talked about how that Jesus is a servant. So while he is a king in Matthew, he is a servant in Mark. And we talked about how that there is no genealogy list in Mark. There is no ancestry list in Mark because nobody cares 
about where the servant came from. They just want him to serve. And Mark opens up and then uh, very carefully lays out for us the stories of how Jesus served everybody around him. And he makes the point very clear through the book that the goal of a leader is to be a servant. And the greatest among you will be the servant of all. From Mark, we went on to Luke and we looked at how that Luke's book emphasizes that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of Man. And that was the title he called himself by more than any other title of self-description throughout the four Gospels. Over and over and over and over and over again, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And that literally means the Son of a human. We talked, we've talked about how that Jesus is 100% God. We'll look at that in this book tonight. But uh, beyond that, he's also 100% man. That's mind-bending. How could someone be fully 100% a human man like one of us, but still be deistic and still be 100% God. And uh, Jesus accomplished that in his coming and his being. He walked amongst us. He suffered. He hurt. He felt and bore our sorrows in his body. And there's no loneliness, loneliness, there's no depression, there's no temptation, there's no struggle that you can go through that Jesus doesn't already know because he was a man. Our God was a man and he experienced all those things in his lifetime. And so now we move on to the book of John. And the emphasis in the book of John is that Jesus is the son of of God. Now, he opens his book with a short poem, a short uh, Greek poem, and uh, that uh, uh, goes from John chapter 1 down through verse number 18. And in this poem, he is paralleling Genesis chapter 1. Uh, how does Genesis chapter 1 start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It starts with the words in the beginning and the idea that God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, verse 2. Uh, so, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And it goes on and tells us that uh, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And we know that Jesus is the light in Genesis 1. And so, you have all three parts of the uh, Trinity present in Genesis chapter 1. John chapter 1 begins much the same way, making the point that Jesus was present all the way back when the world was created. Look at verse number 1 of Genesis chapter 1. We see here it says, In the beginning, same three words, was the Word. Now notice that W is capitalized. That's because this is speaking of a person. Further down, we'll prove that. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Look down to verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. Who is that? We'll talk about this verse more in a moment, but that is Jesus. Jesus is the word. He is God wrapped in flesh. We call that the incarnation, the incarnation of, of Christ. Now, that word incarnation, carne, carne, uh, carne in Spanish, and that means meat, flesh. Jesus robed himself. God robed himself in flesh. God left heaven and became a man. Jesus was 100% God. So let me give you three thoughts here in the introduction. Notice first there, notice his title. His title. Look back at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, with God, and the Word was God. Now, my words are distinct from who I am. 
As my words are coming out of my mouth, they are separate from me. And so Jesus is a distinct person in the Trinity. So notice there, distinct, distinct. So uh, his title, he was with God, meaning separate of God, but yet he uh, was God. Look at that. Uh, so we see his title, distinct, and then secondly, divine. He, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What do my words represent? They represent my mind and emotions. They are an expression of my mind and my emotions. My words represent me. My words are me. Jesus, the Word, the Word. Uh, they are an expression of who God the Father is, and they are who God the Father is. That's why Jesus would say later in the book, I and my Father are one. We're one. Yes, I'm here and He's in heaven. So there's a distinction between me here on earth and Him up in heaven. But while there is that distinction, there is that divinity. We are one. We are one. Um, you hold in your lap, if you have a Bible, you hold in your lap the written Word of God. Jesus is the living Word of God. He is the living Word of God. So, John, right out of the gate, tells us, uh, uh, John, the disciple of Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, tells us right out of the gate that Jesus is uh, uh, the beginning. He's, he, he, is, uh, he is of God, or rather, he, uh, he is with God and He was God. Verse 2 goes on to show us His existence in the creation. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were, uh, were made by Him. Who were they made by? By Jesus. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him, Jesus, the Word, was life. And the life was the light of men. So, the first thing I want to show you in this short poem by John in the beginning of the book is the, the, the idea here of title. Now, uh, the title of distinction and divine. Now, look down with me. Uh, let's look at the second idea here. And this is the idea of together. Togetherness. Togetherness. Number two. Togetherness. Look down at verse 18. It says there, no man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, look here, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared it. In the bosom of the Father. The idea of togetherness there. Let me give you number three. Notice tabernacle. Now, this is really, really, really neat. In fact, uh, maybe nobody else here has ever seen this before, unless you have really studied this in depth. Look at uh, verse number 14. So again, we're looking at the third thought in the introduction here. Tabernacle. Look at verse 14. And the Word uh, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Look at verse 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So notice that word glory in verse number 14. Uh, if you can, take your Bibles back over to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 33. Deuteronomy chapter 33. Let me show you something here. Uh, you remember the story where Moses goes up into the mountain to get the, uh, the Ten Commandments? The first time he went up, God etched it in stone. And he came down off the mountain and the Israelites were dancing around the golden calf and he shatters them, right? Uh, a little bit later, God sends them back up into another mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And this time, he had to etch them out. While he's up there, while he's up there, he wants to, um, 
he, he wants to see God, or rather God wants to reveal himself uh, to him. I believe I have the right book here. I'm, I'm going off the top of my head with this. I do not have the right book. All right, I'll just tell you about it here. And those of you that know the story, you'll, um, you'll, you'll recognize this. While Moses is up there, God says to him, um, uh, I would like to show myself to you. God makes the offer to Moses. And Moses says, okay. And God says, but I can't show myself to you because no man has ever seen me. If any man were to see me in all my glory, my glory, it would kill him. And so God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and he quickly passes by. Moses comes out in time just to see the after effects of God being there. And so Moses saw the after effects of the glory of God. That word glory is used extensively in the passage I'm referring to. Studied it earlier this week. Uh, I failed to remember the exact chapter there. But Moses comes back down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And what do everybody say? Oh man, Moses, put a bag on your head. His face was so bright after seeing God, they, could, they couldn't stand to look at it. Why? Because his face shone with the glory of God. And so he stood up in the tabernacle with the, uh, with the Ten Commandments there, and he's instructing them with this, this law, this moral law. And he had to wear a veil over his face because people could not stand to look at him. Jesus comes along, verse 14 again, now keep that story in mind. And the word, John 1, 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, the law was given by Moses. This is a reference back to Moses giving the law and his face shining with the glory. What did he see? He saw that bosom of God the Father and God the Son together. And so here, right in this opening poem, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, we get the idea that Jesus is the Son of God by his title, by his togetherness, and a representation of the tabernacle. Now, this evening I propose that Jesus is undeniably God's Son. Some have said that He was nothing more than a good teacher, but not deity. And to those I would say this. By the way, there's a lot of religions out there that teach that. Jesus was a good man. The Muslims even teach this. The Mormons teach this. Jesus was a good man, but He wasn't deity. And to that I'd say, hold on a minute, He Himself claimed to be God. So either he was who he said he was, or he was a heretic and a liar. There's no middle road here. Either Jesus is God, or he's a heretic and a liar. And so you can't claim he was just a good teacher. Um, uh, I believe that if we, you and I, are going to be his disciples, then we must be willing to lay down our lives for those around us. When I say lay down our lives, I mean lay down our time and lay down our resources and lay down our finances and lay down our energy and even be willing to give up our life for the sake of the gospel and for righteousness. And for the next uh, three Wednesday evenings, we're going to study this book. Tonight, we're going to look at three principal thoughts as we study in depth Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. So let's jump right into the outline there. Notice number one, the profile the profile of Jesus' life. The profile of Jesus' life. Um, John finishes his poem, then he moves on to share seven titles. That number is very important in this book, by the way. Seven is the number of God. 
It's, it's God's number. He shares seven titles that others would use to label Jesus. All right? Uh, turn over with me to chapter 1, and we'll see the first title in verse 34. It says, uh, And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. If you want to mark these seven in your Bible like I did, I'd encourage you to do that. Look down at verse number 38. We get the second title. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, What seek ye? They saith unto him, here's the second title, Rabbi, Rabbi, which uh, it being interpreted as master or teacher. Verse uh, 41, look at verse 41. Uh, he first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ, Messiah, Christ. Look down at verse, um, let's see, we get a couple of titles at, at the end of verse 45. You have Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, and then son of Joseph, son of Joseph or son of man. Look down at verse 49, you get the seventh one there, and that would be king of Israel. King of Israel. Actually, there's another one I missed. Uh, back in verse 29, you have Lamb of God. Lamb of God. There's the seventh one. Lamb of God. So you have seven titles ascribed uh, to Jesus by these various people recorded by the author of John. What was the author of John trying to tell us? You see here, it says the fully human, their son of Joseph, uh, Jesus from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, is the messianic king, the Messiah, and uh, 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 a rabbi, teacher of Israel, and the son of God who will die for the sins of the world. Let's read that paragraph out loud together. Ready? The fully human Jesus from Nazareth is the messianic king and teacher of Israel and the son of God who will die for the sins of the world. That's quite a claim. That's quite a claim to make about somebody. The claim that they're all that. Just in the first chapter. Just after you get past that opening poem. Now John spends the rest of his book proving that that paragraph is true. Proving that that paragraph is true. So the profile of Jesus' life. The profile of Jesus' life. He is the Lamb of God. He is God's Son. Number two, notice the purpose of Jesus' coming. The purpose of Jesus' is coming. Why did Jesus come? Well, we've uh, looked at that from three different other, or three other angles, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let's look at it from the angle of Jesus being God's son. We see uh, letter A, he came to perfect. He came to perfect. Now, interestingly enough, um, he covers four different institutions that he shows us that, hey, I gave you these four institutions to be a picture of me and we're going to look and see in John two, uh, uh, John two, uh, let's see, John two through four, how what these four institutions are and how he perfects them. The first institution is that of a wedding union. A wedding union. Look at John chapter two, in verse number seven. Jesus is thirty years old. He's going to begin his earthly ministry here. He's collected his disciples. He's headed to Cana for a wedding of a loved one or a friend, and uh, he shows up there, and his mother is. Proud as a peacock. I mean, wouldn't you be if you were married? Your son is God. Uh, I'd be proud of my son, too, if my son was God. And so she shows up and they run out of 
uh, uh, wine or grape juice at the wedding, uh, vine juice at the wedding. And uh, who knows, some of it may have been fermented up to this point. We don't know. We know that what he turned into wine would not be uh, fermented. I'll prove that to you here in just a minute. But uh, they come to, uh, 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 they, there's a, clearly a problem here uh, of not having enough grape juice. And um, uh, they say to uh, uh, Jesus, Mary says to Jesus, uh, you can do this. And then she turns to the men uh, that are over the feast and says, you do whatever he tells you to. He's going to take care of this problem. And he gets a little aggravated with his mother. Anybody here ever get aggravated with their mother? Gets aggravated with his mother. He says, woman, (laughs) woman, my hour has not yet come. And she's like, yes, it is. Come on. I'm pushing you out of the nest. Get out there and do it. And so uh, they come to him and he says, go fill the water pots with water. Look down at verse 7. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them uh, up in the brim. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. Now what would you be thinking? We don't have the backdrop of Jesus performing hundreds of miracles. Jesus has never really performed a miracle. You're there, and you're told, go get water, and you fill these water pots. 120 total gallons is what's estimated. And they draw out the water, and they're told to go give that to the the governor of the feast as a representation of wine. And you're thinking, but it's water. And he says, just do it. And you're saying, on what authority? Because I said so, just do it. So they take this cup of water to the governor of the feast and he drinks it. And it is the best wine, vine juice, that had been served. That had been served. Look at verse 9. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants withdrew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. It was the bridegroom's responsibility to provide the wine. And saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, uh, then that which is worse, but that thou hast kept the good wine until now. The beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So he turned the water into wine. What is this to be symbolic of? How is this Wedding union symbolic. Take your Bibles back over to Isaiah. I'm sure about this reference. Isaiah chapter 25 and verse number 6. This, this uh, turning of the water into wine was foretold by Isaiah in his prophecy. Isaiah, walking the earth, wrote about the day that the, uh, this very event would happen. And if you're reading in Isaiah and you're not thinking about the marriage uh, feast at Cana, this verse probably wouldn't seem to say that. But when you, again, put in context uh, that verse with this passage, boy, it sure is neat. And by the way, this verse proves that the, the wine was not fermented. This verse proves it. Look at Isaiah 25, verse 6. It says, and in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast in a fat things, a feast of wine on the lees, of fat things full of morrow, of wine, wines on the lees. Notice those last two words. Well refined. That word refined means pure. Pure. Wine that's fermented is not pure. Jesus, Isaiah was saying here, in this very mountain there will be a day when the Lord will serve wine to people right here. Jesus came and fulfilled Isaiah 25, 6. He served them a wine that was refined, a wine 
That was fear. What is the message here that Jesus was saying? He was saying, I am the vine. I am the vine juice. I will be spilled out for you. Interestingly enough, Ephesians 5 says that the husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. How much does Christ love the church? He shed his blood for it. He shed his blood for it. So we see the wedding union. What's he doing here? He is perfecting the institutions that he's given to men. The second one we see here is the temple building. The temple building. Look down at chapter 2, verse number 13. The Bible says there, And the the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And the disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Again, another fulfillment of a minor uh, prophet uh, prophecy there. Verse 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, saying that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Again, Jesus is clarifying the different uh, institutions that were created and how he is the fulfillment of them. Let me ask you tonight, what was the purpose of the temple building? Jesus goes in and, and, and throws everybody out. What was the purpose of the temple building? It was a place where man could meet with God, right? It was a place where man could go meet with God. Now, uh, the church in the church era, the church building is the place we come where we gather together and we corporately meet with God. You don't need a church building to corp- or rather to individually meet with God. You can do that anytime you want through prayer and Bible reading. But back in the Old Testament, prior to Jesus dying on the cross, you went to the temple, you went to the synagogue to have that place where you could meet with God. And you know what Jesus was saying? He was saying, I am the temple. I am where you can meet with God. It is through me that union between God and mankind is made. I will hang on the cross. I will die for your sins. And I am the temple that will reunite uh, uh, the Creator with His creation. I will salvage mankind, not a building. Destroy me, the temple, and I will raise up in three days. I will raise that temple back up in three days. The third institution here would be temple leaders. Temple leaders. Turn to chapter 3 and verse number 1. The institution of the Pharisees or of the scribes or the Levitical priesthood. That idea, chapter 3, verse number 1 says there, now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a, a ruler of the Jews. So this is the third institution Jesus is going to uh, 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 use here to show himself. The same came to Jesus by night and saith unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest. Except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter the second time in his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, Ye must be born again. And here Nicodemus is coming to Jesus, and what's he call him? In verse number 1 there, he calls him a, or a, a, rather verse number 2. He comes to Jesus and he calls him a rabbi. Nicodemus, the rabbi himself, looked at Jesus and he said, you're a good teacher. You're a good teacher. And you know what? Jesus looked back at him and he said, you don't need any more good teachers. There are already teachers that do a pretty good job in Israel and they've been here a long time. You don't need teachers. What you need is to be born anew. You need to be born again. You have the, you have the, uh, uh, the technical details of religion down. You know how to tithe off, uh, uh, off mint and, 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 and other various types of herbs. You know how to uh, keep every uh, uh, little letter of the law in order. But what you don't have is a relationship with God through the power of regeneration, through that of being born anew into the family of God. And Jesus said, Nicodemus... The purpose of the temple leaders is to point people to Christ. It's to point people to me. I am the good master. I am the rabbi that's not come to teach you how to perform a sacrifice. I'm come to be the sacrifice and teach you how you can have salvation through it. So we see a third institution here that Jesus has used to point back to himself as being God's son. The wedding union, the temple building, the temple leaders. How about the fourth one here of the sacred landmarks? The sacred landmarks. Turn over to chapter 4. Now Jesus uh, leaves Jerusalem. He's heading back up toward Galilee where he'll do the large majority of his ministry. And uh, while he's in Galilee, or rather on his way to Galilee... He comes to a well, a well, Sychar's well. And uh, it was dug by Jacob. And boy, that thing was valued. And so Jesus sends his disciples off to get food. And he stays by the well waiting for an appointment he had, a divine appointment he had, with a Samaritan woman who was there at the heat of the day to avoid all of the criticisms of everybody else. At least that's uh, speculated. And there she is. She's thirsty. She's drawing water from a well. And she has to come back day after day because this well never does permanently satisfy her thirst. And so she's there and she's drawing out water. Uh, and Jesus says to her, give me to drink in verse number seven. And, G and she says to him, what are you, a Hebrew man, doing speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? I, I, that just doesn't happen. And he says to her, if you knew what I had to give of you, you would be asking me to give you water. You would not be asking me. I, I, you would not be uh, giving, get, getting me water. And she says, how can you get me water? You don't even have anything to draw out of this well from. And he said, listen, the water I have to give to you is eternal. This woman, though, she turns the conversation back toward that of traditions and rituals. Look at verse number, uh, let's see here. Look, look at verse number 11. The Bible says, the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, the well is deep. Notice her attention on the physical well. Uh, from whence then hast thou the living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? You know what this woman is worshiping? She was worshiping Jacob in his well. She was relying on this 
well to give her water to satisfy a thirst. The problem was the next day she needed more. Satan's been using that trick for years. Sacred landmarks. How many people make a trip to Mecca every year to bow down and worship the gods of, uh, of Islam? Uh, people attached to landmarks and to things and they're sacred and they're holy to them. Uh, how many folks in the Catholic religion bow down and worship idols in their home and idols in their church and they're caught up on idolatrous worshiping of a sacred landmark or an idol. And uh, Jesus says here, listen, uh, 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 the well you're drinking of will leave you thirsty. Just like religion is going to continue to cause you to have to come back and look for more. But the well I will give you, the water I will give you, if you'll drink of that, you'll never thirst again. Jesus was saying, Jacob dug this well as a holdover to get humanity by until the day I could come and give them living water so they would never thirst again. I am the fulfillment of this sacred landmark. So we see here that Jesus came to perfect four institutions. Secondly, we see here that Jesus came to perfect the four holy days. The four holy days. Take your Bibles uh, over to John chapter 5. And we'll look at the first one here, and that would be the Sabbath. John chapter 5 and verse number 8. Let's back up. Uh, no, no, verse number 8 works. It says there, uh, uh, the story here, Jesus comes into town. It is the Sabbath day, and you weren't supposed to be able to heal on the Sabbath. Can I pause for a minute? Why would have they had a law about not healing people on the Sabbath? Nobody could heal. Has anybody ever wondered that other than me? Clearly, it was against the, their law for Jesus to perform a miracle. Who wrote that? Who made that law up? None of them could perform miracles. You know, you'd think that that would have like been beyond their capacity to think. But they had made this law. Now, maybe they made it up as Jesus was coming on the scene so they could trip him up. But it was against the law for Jesus to heal anybody, to perform a miracle. Jesus wasn't going to let that get in his way because he, well, we'll look, look at it here. Verse 8. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Now again, he's coming to perfect the use of the Sabbath. Look at verse 10. The Jews thereof. And anytime you see Jews like this, it's referring to the religious leaders. The Jews thereof saith unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. So they, they stop him and they say, hey, what are you doing carrying your bed? It's the Sabbath day. And, he, and, and the Jew goes on, uh, this man here uh, that was healed, the impotent man, goes on to say, well, hey, uh, some guy healed me and uh, he told me to carry my bed. And so they figure out it's Jesus. Look down with me at verse number, let's see, verse number uh, 17. They confront Jesus on it. And they ask him, hey, what are you doing healing on the Sabbath day? Jesus says to them in verse 17, uh, it says, but Jesus answered them, my father worketh hitherto and I work. You know what he's saying? God works on the Sabbath day. That means I get to work on the Sabbath day. You know what he's saying to them? I can work on the Sabbath because I'm God. They did not like that. That angered them. They wanted to, you read on down, they wanted to kill him for those remarks. How dare you claim to be God? He came to perfect 
the use of that holy day of the Sabbath. How about the Passover? The Passover. We see that he came to perfect that one as well. Look at chapter 6 and verse number 4. And Jesus was very careful and methodical about when he chose to do certain miracles. Look at verse 4. The Bible says, In the Passover, a feast of the Jews was nigh. So, this is the occasion. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover. All right? What was the Passover? Let's stop and remember. Remember, Moses and the Israelites were in Egypt. And, uh, and he says to them, I want you to take a lamb and I want you to kill it. And I want you to put the blood of that lamb in a basin. And I want, it's got to be a firstborn lamb without spot or blemish. And you're going to take some hyssop or a weed and you're going to dip that in that bowl, that uh, basin, and you're going to wipe that up on the top of your door and on the sides of your door. Again, all of this is symbolic of the cross. And the death angel is going to come by. And if the blood is on the door, I will pass over your house. If the blood's not on the door, then I'm going to come in and I'm going to kill the firstborn in every family. So you don't want the firstborn killed, put the blood on the door. Now all the symbolism there, that lamb that was slain is a picture of Jesus, the Lamb of God, that would be slain. The blood on the top of the door in the side post is a symbol of the cross. And if the blood of Jesus is applied to your heart, the death angel will pass over you and you'll go to heaven. You see that? So that was what the Passover was. And so every year after that, the Jews were supposed to celebrate that Passover event with a feast known as the Passover feast. And so the Israelites would pile in from all over the country into Jerusalem to celebrate this. And so Jesus was in town for that occasion to celebrate that Passover feast. How do we celebrate the Passover? By putting our faith in Jesus and having our sins washed away. Now look what Jesus does here. Look down with me at uh, verse number 10. Or rather, let's keep reading. Verse 5 here. Uh, chapter 6, verse number 5 says, And when Jesus lifted up his eyes he, and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, uh, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. So you get the picture here. Jesus has 5,000 men, and then all these men with... Uh, I'm sure I, I would assume a large uh, percentage of them had wives. And when you have husbands and wives, you have children. And so 5,000, if there were uh, another 3,000 women, let's say, uh, that were married, another 2,000 women that were single, you've got 10,000 there. And then when you have men and women that are married, guess what they do? They make babies. And so you, maybe you had two or three children apiece. You could have easily had 20,000, 30,000 people here. Jesus has them sit down. And all the food he has to work with is five loaves of bread and two small fishes. And so he has the people sit down in an orderly way. He prays over this food and he begins to break the food and distribute it. He begins to break the food and distribute it. And he feeds this huge crowd. So much food that when it's all said and done, they go around and pick up the leftovers. There's 12 baskets left over of food. 
Jesus fed 5,000 plus people with five loaves and two fishes. How did he do it? He's God. He's God. He can do anything. He can defy all the laws of physics. And he sure did that day. That's one I hope that is recorded. We get to heaven. We can sit in the theater of heaven and watch that great event. So he sends the crowds away fed. He goes up into a mountain to pray. He eventually ends up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee the next morning. The people can't find him anywhere. They eventually find him on the other side and they question him. They say, hey, we want you to feed us more. We want you to feed us forever. And Jesus says, listen, I did not come to feed your belly. I came to feed your heart. Look at verse number 35. John six thirty-five. Now he's addressing the same crowd he fed the day before. On the other side of the sea, they're wanting more food. And this is what he says, verse 35, John chapter 6. And Jesus saith unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. So, what is eating the bread of life? What is eating Jesus uh, uh, paralleled with? It's coming, alright? Look at this. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So, coming to Jesus is symbolized by, uh, by eating. Uh, 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 drinking, or rather believing in Jesus, is symbolized by thirsting. So, Jesus goes on to say this in the passage, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, that sounds weird. How, how would he say, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Well, when you stop and remember, this is parallel to eating is coming and drinking is believing. What was he saying? You've got to come to me and you've got to believe on me. That is equivalent to eating my flesh and drinking my blood. And remember the occasion. This is the Passover. You know what he's saying? I am the fulfillment of the Passover. I am the fulfillment of the Passover. It's no accident that Jesus fed the 5,000 on the feast of the Passover. He was coming to perfect that holy day. How about this one? How about the, the Feast of Tabernacles? Tabernacles. That's the next one that goes up on the screen there. Tabernacles. Look at John chapter 7. John chapter 7 and verse number 2. Move quickly through this one here. It says there, Now the Jews... Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. All right, really quick here. Um, what did the tabernacle remind them of? When did they use the tabernacle? Somebody? Somebody help me out here. At what juncture of Israeli life, where were they while they were using the tabernacle? They're in the wilderness. Wandering in the wilderness. What happened in the wilderness? Well, they ran out of water twice. And so Moses struck the rock both times. He should have only struck it once, but struck the rock twice. And when the rock was struck, water came flowing out enough to take care of over a million Israelites and all their cattle. Must have been quite a river of water flowing out of a huge boulder of a rock. What else happened in the wilderness? Well, one of the things that happened in the wilderness around the tabernacle was that there was... God provided a heating and cooling system for them. We know that in a desert, it gets really hot during the day and really cold at night. So what did God do? He provided over the top of all of his people a cloud by day to keep the sun off of them. And then at nighttime, that cloud turned into a pillar of fire at night. Right? So he, was, he illuminated the night sky. And he was, and there was water for the people to drink. Jesus shows up at the Feast of the Tabernacles and he says, not only am I the completion of the Sabbath, 
Not only am I a completion of the Passover, I am a completion of the tabernacles, Feast of Tabernacles. Look at John chapter 7, verse 37. In the last day, it says, that great day of the feast, Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Hey, just like they went to the rock and they drank when they were thirsty on two different occasions, if you want to drink and have your eternal thirst quenched, Come to me, and I will quench your thirst. I am the completion of the tabernacles. How about chapter 8, verse 12? Again, remembering that fire at night that kept them warm and illuminated the sky was the nightlight for them. It says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. The light of the world. He that followeth me, they followed that pillar around at nighttime. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. A nightlight. A light of life. You want to have that light amongst you? I am the completion of the Feast of Tabernacles. I am the water that quenches the thirst of your soul. I am the light that leads you down life's path. You must come to me and believe. But not only did he fulfill the holy day of the Sabbath and of the Passover and of the tabernacles, he also fulfills the holy day of dedication or of Hanukkah. Turn over to chapter 10 and verse number 22. Moving quickly here, 10.22. The Bible says, And it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication. Now, that word Hanukkah, all right, you don't find it in the Bible, but we know that the, the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people celebrate Hanukkah. That word Hanukkah means dedication. This was the Feast of Hanukkah that Jesus showed up uh, to here. And he's going to show them, hey, listen, I am that as well. Now, what? when did Hanukkah begin? What was that around? The reason why we're not as familiar with this one is because it sort of happened outside of Scripture. But basically what happened is a man by the name of Judah Maccabees, he went into the temple and he cleared it of idol worship and he reestablished it to be a place of the Lord. He rededicated it rather to be a place of the Lord. And here Jesus is saying, I am a completion of the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of, of, of Hanukkah. Look at uh, verse number 31. John chapter 10, verse 31. Then the Jews stood up, uh, uh, rather took up stones again to stone him, Jesus. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from the Father. For which of these works do ye stone me? Then the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that, that thou, uh, 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 being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, It is not written in your law. Is it not written in your law? I said, Ye are gods. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and, uh, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. I do not the works of my Father. Uh, I, if I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, uh, though uh, ye believe not me, believe the works that uh, ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So he's saying, I came to... to rededicate, to throw out bad works and to be the holy work. All right, really quick here, letter B. We see his purpose in coming was to proclaim. The purpose of Jesus coming was to proclaim. I'm not going to spend any time on these. Um, all of your subpoints are uh, sermons I have already preached. 
Uh, but going back to John 3, going all the way through John 7, we see Jesus present the gospel to five different groups of people. And who are they? You can fill in the blanks really quick. They are to the scholars, the sinner, the scholar being Nicodemus, the sinner being the woman at the well, the sick, that's the impotent man by the well that can't walk, uh, or rather by the pool of Bethesda that can't walk, and then to the skeptics, those are the people that he told to eat my flesh and drink my blood. To the skeptics, they, they left him, they, they rejected that. And then to the scorners, to the scorners. So there you see uh, the life of Jesus. He came to give the gospel, to proclaim the true meaning of his life and how that you can have salvation if you'll believe. That was why he came as God's son. All right, number three and lastly, we see the picture of Jesus' ministry. The picture of Jesus' ministry, chapter 11. Now, if you want to know how the book kind of breaks down, chapter 1 is introduction. Chapters 2 through 10 uh, are the works of Jesus. Chapters 11 and 12 are kind of, so you have 2 through 10, and then you have 13 through, I think, 21 is the end of the book. And then 11 and 12 kind of tie the two together. 11 and 12 kind of tie the two together. And I'm going to give you something really, really fascinating here. We've got to move quick. Here, Jesus is told, he's in Galilee, and he's told, your friend Lazarus is dying. He's very sick. You need to come quickly. Now, Jesus knew that Jerusalem was a death trap. For him to go back to Jerusalem meant that he was going to get killed. Barring some kind of supernatural divine uh, uh, interference. And uh, if you read through John uh, chapter 11, Thomas actually says, hey, let's do this, let's go. None of the other disciples are really on board. What did Jesus do? Jesus waited three days. He was waiting for Lazarus to die. After Lazarus was dead, Jesus got his disciples together and he marched toward Bethany, a suburbia city of Jerusalem where he knew that his death was certain. Jesus gets into Jerusalem, and, or rather into Bethany, and uh, first uh, uh, Martha meets him outside of the city, knows he's coming, and really berates him for being late. If you'd have been here sooner, my brother wouldn't have died, and you could have healed him. Jesus said to her, he said, uh, you're going to see your brother again. She says, oh, I know I'll see him in the resurrection. And he looks at her in verse number 25 of John 11, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Mary eventually makes her way out and he uh, consoles Mary. Verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, tells us that Jesus wept. He knew that Mary, he knew that Lazarus would live again, but he wept because those amongst him were grieving and hurting. Jesus then steps to the tomb and he says, roll the stone away. They roll the stone away and Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come forth. And this dead Lazarus comes floating out of the tomb. I believe he floated. He would, have been, he would have been mummified in his clothes, wouldn't have been able to walk. I believe he floated out of the tomb. They unwrapped him. Lazarus was dead, now alive. Now, here's what I want you to get tonight. I'm giving you a lot of factual information. Here's what I want to give you tonight. John 15, 13 says what? Say it with me if you know it. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. Do you know that John 11, Jesus practiced that very verse? He looked at his friend who was dead. And he walked into a death trap 
by going to Jerusalem. And he said, I'll sign my own death sentence by showing up so that you can live. I'm willing to die so that you can have life. That's played out in the rest of the book. by Jesus being willing to die to provide life. His death brings life. My friend Lazarus wasn't the only friend that Jesus laid his life down for. He laid it down, laid it down for you and for me. And he calls us to do the same thing. We are to lay down our lives for the betterment of society. We are to lay down our lives to give out the good news of Jesus Christ the way Jesus gave himself to. We are to lay down our finances and we're to lay down our, our health and we're to lay down our effort and our energy. We're to give up everything we have so that others can see Jesus in the way we live. And if called upon, where do you even be willing to die to produce eternal life in others? God's not called me to do that, and I don't know that He's called any of you to do that. But I'll say this. I know many good people who have died a premature death. I think of our good brother, Brother Ed Cowan, who I did a funeral for here recently. You know, at Brother Cowan's funeral, there were seven or eight people that raised their hand for salvation. In his death, eternal life was born. Because of his death, people were saved, given the gift of eternal life. I believe Brother Ed died a premature death. ALS came and got him and put him in the grave early. He was really young to die, as young as he did. But he laid down his life, involuntarily, but nonetheless he laid down his life. Through that death, God was able to birth a new eternal life. God may not call you to die, but he has called you to live. The question tonight is this, will you live for Jesus? Will you give of yourself... So you can be like Jesus and you can help others come and experience that eternal life. Let's have our heads bowed nice closed this evening. Lord, I ask tonight that you help us as we consider the passage, we consider the book, we consider how that you are the Son of God and how that deity died so that us who are sinful, who are filthy, who are rotten, can have eternal life. Thank you for not only coming, but, but dying. Thank you for not only proclaiming, but practicing what you proclaimed. Thank you not only for being our teacher, but for being our great example. May we pick that up and follow you and be true disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.